Hello everyone and welcome to the Track and Field Performance Podcast, a platform dedicated to providing expert insights from coaches and practitioners who work in the sport of track and field. I'm your host, Colin Burke. I'm a long jumper from Sligo, Ireland, who currently works in the field of higher education as a career coach, as well as being a volunteer assistant on the University of Louisiana Monroe's track and field team. I hope this podcast serves as a useful resource for you and your athletes enabling them to improve track and field performance. Now, without further ado, let's get started with today's episode and bring forth our guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It's good to be back on the microphone uh, and getting in front of another fantastic guest who can provide a world of insight for you listeners at home. Taking a little break between the olympic games kind of felt that it would be better to release this as people begin to wind down from the olympics and are not so clued in um but what a fantastic olympics it's been so many great performances i didn't really know what to expect um given that there was going to be a very different setup regarding uh, restrictions and everything else for the athletes prior and during the olympic games but it's it's really gone well beyond uh, what I expected and and also some interesting results so I think you probably feel the same uh, regarding what event I'm not sure but it's been it's been really really enjoyable you know moving forward into today's episode you know coach Glenn Smith has was my coach and recruited me at the University of Louisiana Monroe back in January 2018 and before he left to go to the University of Central Florida uh, last September I had I had really had the the joy of of being around him for you know nearly three years and and learning uh, how to be a better coach a better person and also a better athlete so you know it's it it was really inevitable that I was going to bring him on here and I've quoted him in many other episodes and it goes without saying that I would not be doing this podcast if I hadn't spent the time around Glenn that I have and so. It's really nice to be able to say that and it's even nicer to be able to um, extend what exactly I mean by that uh, to you listeners at home as we talked an awful lot about uh, running mechanics, uh, mechanics of the long jump approach, also you know different body parts that are influenced in a pelvic movement and what you want to see from a coaching standpoint to kind of teeter them in the right direction, also leadership, coaching lessons, communication, you name it there is a lot of value in this episode and so very happy to have glenn on the show and it's going to be a good one and i hope you agree on the sponsorship front i've mentioned the last few episodes that track burn have become an affiliate of the podcast and it's been really cool to actually see that uh, many of you have, have been using the code so that's really nice you've been saving yourself some money on the track and field uh, through the track and field performance podcast but if you are looking to get 3d customized gear um, or I should say customized gear that is done through the 3D customizer that they have on the website. Um, Trackburn really know what they're doing when it comes to putting some great designs and combining it with, with quality apparel. I think that's really what I have to say by using it myself. And um, also on top of that, if you're someone who is kind of looking for you know, training equipment, whether it's poles um, from main retailers like you know, Altius and, and, or Hurdles from Gill, uh, they really have it all on their on their website and if you'd like to avail of the discount code uh, for 10% off TNF10 is what you can use to claim your discount so 
uh keep using that because it's helping me and it's i'm glad it's helping you too so you know delighted to be partnered with a company that specializes in the same realm as me and i've said that but it is cool and i can attest to their products because i use them uh for my track gear myself so i really like what they came out with my uh, rahini shamrocks customized gear and uh, many people have complimented me on it complimented me on it so that's cool and um they're doing great things and they have great owners over there that are just really passionate about the sport and i just i just love to see that i've also set up a website it's not a website everyone's most people are familiar with uh, patreon patreon is kind of a website where many people can kind of contribute and set up pages for their respective endeavors so for me i have a podcast page and many people can uh, subscribe um, and give a monthly uh, gesture to myself but there's also tiers involved and i want to scale this uh, moving forward so what i mean by that is for those who kind of select the upper tier if they want to subscribe for five dollars a month um i will be adding in an additional episode but i'll also be setting up a forum for where listeners can suggest ideas and future recommendations for guests that they would like on and questions for those guests they'll get uh, also the video from each of my um interviews with my guests which a lot of coaches have been asking for and i didn't think it would be so popular but many people want to see the conversation uh, via video so i am going to save that for this purpose and i have been saving them um for coaches to to avail of that so as i said if you just feel like this is a valuable service to you um it's going to continue to be free this isn't a set charge for anyone um, but if you'd like to support and acknowledge that it's provided value to your coaching uh, head on over to patreon and head on over to tnf performance which is the same as my instagram um page and uh sub- subscribe to the patron if you want to tier one if you're just looking to say thanks and a tier two if you're looking for a little bit extra um it would be of, of, of a huge help to me uh, it does take time to make this podcast and it certainly does when you have all the things that i have going on but i love doing it and i've learned so much from it so i want to thank everyone for their support whether it's just an instagram message an email a review on any of the websites whether it's spotify apple google uh you know all of it especially because it's not the largest scale podcast in the world has made a big difference and it makes my day honestly when i just see someone uh, expect and express an act of kindness towards what i'm doing um and i want to continue to get great coaches on here coaches that can give you insight answer questions that you need answering and you need to to understand in order to elevate your coaching and your athlete's performance so all that to say thanks again for the continued support let's get stuck in to listening to coach glenn smith good afternoon everyone uh welcome back to the track and field performance podcast i am very happy to be joined by my coach here today university of central florida's field events coach coach glenn smith how are you doing today glenn i'm all right colin good to talk to you yeah, thanks for for coming on. Uh, I'd love to get stuck into you know a little bit about your knowledge with that you've gained within track and field, but many wouldn't really know much about your story at all and how you got to where you're at. Um, obviously, you're a former international sprinter, and so there's a there's a unique journey to you. And uh, I'd love you to share how that kind of 
came about and how you developed from being a, a, a great athlete but into the coach you are today. So uh, give people a bit about your background. Well, uh, I started out in just a junior high school track, uh, grade seven. I was, uh, you know, did uh, the 50-meter sprints and that kind of thing. And um, I, you know, kind of typical sprinter is one of the, you know, the fastest in your area. And then you go into a little higher level of competition. Um, and then uh, we moved to Calgary, where my dad got out of the armed forces. And um, we, I, I asked, I played foot, high school football. And at the end of f- football season, I, I asked my football coach if he could find me a track club. So um, he pointed me the direction of Caltaf, Calgary Track and Field Club, and Wilf Gore. And um, I had an awesome experience. The you know, youngest guy in the group kind of worked my way through and um, had some, uh, made the Canadian junior team was a huge highlight for me when I was uh, early in the sport. Um, and then uh, eventually ended up training with Stuart McMillan of uh, Altus. Some of you probably know of him. Um, he was a good friend of mine. We just kind of hung out and used to um, go out to the bars together and stuff like that. And we just kind of, we always decided uh, that he might be a good person that we could bounce ideas off of and we could work together on a, on a program. Um, so yeah, I was one of his first kind of guinea pig athletes and I had a huge breakthroughs, uh, ran really well. Uh, ended up going to train with Dan Path that season two. Um, went to the training camp down there and that changed everything for me. Just saw a totally new level of coaching. And um, so yeah, I, uh, yeah, I had some pretty good success. Kept, just kept getting, getting better. I was kind of a little bit of a late bloomer. Uh, made the Canadian team and uh, World University Games and then World Championships, national champion and was 13th at the World Championships. It was definitely my highlight. Uh, then had another catastrophic injury and then that kind of ended my um success in track as a co- as an athlete um but um yeah i was exposed to dan path and all the people in his network and that it really was a huge influence on on my coaching and what i saw that coaches could be um so yeah i went down to uh i wanted to get into coaching so i went to the university of texas to do a master's degree dan was going to be there at that time um when i had made my decision and then uh he changed courses, moved to North Carolina before I got to go there, but I was just wanted to go and um, go to UT and, and had an awesome experience there. Um, and that was a route that I could get into coaching as a profession because in Canada, there just really aren't many opportunities to do that. So I, uh, I graduated from Texas, worked in a little junior college in Southeast Kansas and uh, was there for a year. Then I went, got a job at Tulane in New Orleans. That was a lot of fun. Uh, eventually, let's see, then I, I went to Central Michigan University, coached there for a couple of years as the um, jumps coach, specialty. Um, then I went to Canada and worked for the national team for a little while. Um, and then after the end of that, um, you know, they closed down the center that I was employed at and they ended up working, uh, going back into the NCAA to Iowa State. Uh, so I coached sprints and hurdles there for a couple of years. And then, uh, yeah, back into jumps at Louisiana Monroe, I was there for five years where I met up with uh, McCollum here, signed him. Um, and uh, then, yeah, Central Florida. Central Florida, it's been an awesome experience here in Orlando and being in the sun and uh, you know, awesome experience working for ECF. Yeah, I think what's cool there is you talked about being a, a guinea pig with um, Stuart McMillan. I, I noticed he tweeted the other day just about how co-coaching can be particularly diff- difficult and during that time, that was probably his first t- taste of co-coaching with Dan Path. Um, now actually working alongside uh, Jody Williams and uh, a coach based in London, which is an interesting thing that 
he probably um, gained a lot of experience from and, and able to navigate that kind of um, situation again, what, 20, 20 odd years later and uh, still producing people on the world stage, which is, which is really interesting. But going from an elite athlete to a coach is, is kind of weird in a way, I think, for many initially, because it's almost like you're going from this person who's extremely, well, selfish almost, and uh, then has to become the opposite, very selfless. Uh, with regards to transitioning the way you did in those early years, um, did any of that kind of mentality play a role in how you were coaching or how you communicated with the athletes that you had? Um, I'm interested to know a little bit about those early mistakes and or thought processes and the coming from that athlete standpoint. Well, when I first started uh, coaching, I suppose I, I, I was, I, I kind of thought you have to do it kind of just like I do. And it was really rigid in some of the, my thinking and the way I tried to, I, I was, you know, kind of thought that we had to get in these types of workouts every single week, kind of no matter what. And I've had some issues with that, or maybe just overworked people in some ways or um, just, uh, wasn't very as, as uh, maybe nimble about being able to decide what training to do and that kind of thing in different situations. I just kind of felt it had to be done one way, kind of more the way I could did it. Um, and, and another thing too was I, I guess when I was a young coach, I was um, I kind of thought people thought similar to me. You know, I was a person that was very much um, uh, self motivated and very like uh, everything was all about track and there was no room for any kind of thing in there and. Uh, so it was difficult for me to empathize with some athletes that were where track was, you know, second place. And so sometimes I wasn't able to um, separate myself um, and be able to see them for what they could offer me, if you know what I mean. So um, I wasn't empathetic as, as I could have been and um, probably ruined some relationships in some ways because I was just uh, I was had a hard time seeing people for um, for where they are and what, what they could do. And, you know, I, I think over time you start to see that and how can I get the most out of this athlete and who they are as a person right now? Um, you know, or the things I used to do, I would just, um, I guess, you know, even just communication skills, I would, um, I had difficulty at times kind of like seeing different ways of looking at it. I just kind of wanted my being alone after a meet if I didn't, if I struggled and, um, you know, a lot of young women, especially need a, need a pat on the back and Hey, it'll be better next time or something like that. And I, I could, you know, I felt guilt about maybe that they didn't perform as I would like and kind of, okay, let me give them some space and stuff like that. When they didn't need some space, they needed a, you know, some, like a, just a gentle, gentle words and, and, uh, encouragement. So yeah, you, you learn things. And I think when I started, I was, uh, my percentage wasn't as good. And I think over time, I, I just started to do a lot better job about just, know getting to know the person be able to get the most out of them whoever they are and in, in whatever time excellent i think that's massive and i definitely noticed that you were able to do that with a variety of different individuals as i was a member of your group um, none of us were the same we all came from different backgrounds had different experiences and, and tra track had a different place in our lives and so yeah i've definitely seen that firsthand when and you've told me many stories about your athletic career and, and kind of some of the pivotal moments, even as an athlete that kind of influenced some of the um, philosophies that you've developed. And you talked about, you know, spending time around Dan Path and uh, having that being such a critical component of how you see things and how you feel like certain uh, aspects are important. And I remember a, a story that you kind of told me during that breakout year 
where um, it was a case of like changing around some of your acceleration and how that kind of, uh, he, he emphasized, you know, a little bit more vertical, if you will, in, in the acceleration, just based on how you were doing things. Not to say that acceleration is to be vertical, but given where you were at and what your tendencies were at the time, I think that has a good lead in for what we're going to talk about mostly in this episode. Um, tell me about, you know, yeah, you had some of those hundred meter breakthroughs during that year. And there were some technical things I remember you telling me about that you felt really allowed you to kick on in certain areas. Yeah. You know, I was a, a taller sprinter, you know, I'm six foot two. Um, so I was, you know, always kind of struggled with my start. So I was the kind of guy I would, um, you know, maybe to keep up in the start, I would kind of spin and turn a lot. I, I didn't really know how to push very well. So when I first went to Dan, he, um, and Stuart was with me, you know, working with me at that time. And he just got me to push big, push a little higher, be more patiently, build it up. You know, so I was trying to increase frequency gradually over time to build up. Um, so yeah, I, it was, it was hard to handle because you're trying to slow down in order to speed up. If you know what I mean, mm -hmm. it was teaching me how to push and push at a little higher angle. Um, and I, I remember went through my first track meet with it and, um, I was running against Mike Marsh and some other pretty good athletes in Houston. And it was a, you know, a little rice twilight all summer meet. And, uh, I just remember pushing and, you know, okay, just Dan told me it. So that's what I do. I just, I had a lot of faith in Dan because he coached, you know, Donovan Bailey, who was a friend of mine who turned from a. 10-4 sprinter to a 9-8 sprinter in a couple of years. You know, he coached Bruni Cern at the time. So kind of like whatever Dan said, it was must be right. <laughs> that was my philosophy at the time. Um, and yeah, I just stayed patient in this run. I got up to about 40 meters and I felt like I was just erupting and my max speed was just incredible and uh, I felt amazing. And then, uh, you know, I ran, uh, it was a very slow track and the winds conditions weren't great. I ran a 10-5, which was about the same as my level or just a little bit off my personal best. And then I went home to Calgary after this training camp and I trained extremely hard. I was very tired and just took a couple of easy days. And then I ran, uh, I ran a 1049 in the heats and I was just like, I turned and they announced it and I was like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? Um, it felt like the easiest run I'd ever run. And I just ran a personal best. Um, and the final came around and I ran 1043 and it was just another level. Um, I kind of jumped another level and I ran, went from 10.5 and 20.9 that year to 10.3 and 20.5. So from 20.9 yeah so it was a total different beast and i was uh, yeah so he changed a lot of my mechanics and some ways that were um i adapted you really quickly some others don't um fit me yeah and that's that's important to note i think all all the while saying that and that's why i said in the beginning you know for you particularly given what you were doing this change enhanced your acceleration ability and probably leveraged some of your strengths because you're admittedly you were more of a 200 specialist and um that probably allowed you to tap into some of your your natural strengths more given the fact that you were accelerating more patiently focusing on force application um i had you know had the luxury of sitting in with with Stuart mcmillan on the young coaches initiative recently and he talked about something very similar. Uh, he had given some examples of uh, Justin Gatlin accelerating and, and how he stays over the, the torso, leans so far over um, the waist. And then someone else beside him was accelerating. And uh, the same model was clearly being applied to both. But it was interesting to see where they were at 30 meters and who was actually in a terrible position 
and who was in a more favorable position. But long story short, Gatlin was able to stay somewhat level in his center of mass and rise gradually, where the op- the opposite athlete, who was a sub-10 runner also, was not. Um, and he gave then some examples of, uh, well, a, tri- a triple Olympic champion, I'm going to say. I didn't watch the relay, but I'm going to say uh, Elaine Thompson, how like she's a very elastic athlete and staying over the the hips for too long would be you know unfavorable to her because she's so like um similar to kind of de grass in a way she's kind of long limbs kind of more elastic so like tapping into those um abilities are are kind of favorable for the gifts that she's got and so i guess that's what i'm saying is that you know your model and how you tweaked it kind of allowed you to tap into those things as well perhaps Yes, well, I mean, if you don't do the transition well and get into the right postural position, that's the key. And I, at that point in time, I didn't understand a lot of those things. So, um, you know, I just tried to kind of turn with people instead of pushing my way up and climbing gradually up. And that transition phase is just so key to everything. And I, I think when you're, you're talking about sprints, it happens so quickly. Everything is so frantic and rushed in there. If you don't take your time to push and push your way up into the positions, it can really kill you when you get up to maximum speed. So by um, having me push a little higher and being more patient with the buildup, I, my max speed was was way better, and I was yeah, I was I was able to maintain it in a better in a better way too than I used to. Yeah, and that you know what's it's it's interesting because when you you kind of can can find where athletes are faltering in those areas or when the transition isn't smooth, the pelvis usually kind of gets left behind a little bit, or the hips, you know, there's kind of that large anterior tilt um the, you know the 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 i heard you talk about this like the the lines or the vectors being um you know applied there aren't fully straight or like the the head does not match up with the ankle and they don't kind of they don't kind of climb in congruency with one another and so there's this kind of like misalignment of forces and and, and everything like that and that's actually something i really wanted to to talk about with you because I mean, to be honest, before I came to to work with you, that's something I had. Ne- I, I mean, many athletes may need to know it, may not need to know it. I don't know, but as a twenty-three year old, I had no idea about how the pelvis played a role in kind of sprinting and and how you can really identify some of these kind of less than ideal positions through what the pelvis is doing. And then similarly, when um, it's doing a great job or it's doing as it should how much it leverages that like ability to be bouncy and kind of underneath yourself at that upright running position. And what's interesting is that some of the best female sprinters that we've seen this year had a, a kind of side-by-side comparison from their best races, Shikari Richardson, I remember it was Shelly Ann and Elaine Thompson and, or maybe Blessing Akabara as well. They were all in very similar uh, stance positions when their foot was on, was hitting the ground, when it was uh, a toe off and everything like that. And you can just see that kind of pelvis rise throughout each step. And that's something that um, I've seen you talk an awful lot about. And I didn't really understand in the beginning. But um, maybe just talk about a little bit of the pelvis, the body parts that are kind of involved, like both from a, uh, let's say, I know you've talked about like the T-spine, if it's kind of tight or immobile, it's not going to allow for that to to work correctly. Um, So yeah, talk a little bit about the pelvis, its role in sprinting and kind of um, what what kind of components link into that? 
Oh, yes, like a, especially in upright mechanics, I'm, I'm looking for a little bit of an up and down kind of bouncing of the body, like a little, like a, like a sine wave kind of moving through the ground, um, over the ground. So, um, and, and then I'm looking at the pelvis. And so what I want to see is that the pelvis is rising on, on the, as we're lifting the knee, there is pelvis is rising and moving forward. Um, so you might see the belt line shift up a little bit as it goes, you know, the opposite shoulder goes forward, the leg that's lifting. The other side goes back. So there's a little movement in the, in the thoracic spine that should happen. Um, I think a lot of times people try to be too rigid and try to keep these kind of imaginary angles of I've got to keep my arms 90 degrees and I have to make everything straight. And, you know, a little bit of side to side is good. You want to see the body shift a little bit over to the, the stance leg and you want to see the shoulders go forward and backward in opposition to what happens in the pelvis. So, you know, the pelvis should, should rise, go forward and draw kind of like little uh, kind of like figure eights and, and while the, the shoulders are mimicking it in, in the opposite way. So, um, you know, I'm looking at contact times, where are we landing underneath? Is the shin vertical at that moment? Is it, how far is it in front of the center of mass? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you, there's in each athlete's little individual, some people are more oscillators, like they move back and forth, have a lot of forward pelvis and forwards and backs of pelvis. Other people are more kind of bouncy and you'll see a little more of a undulating kind of movements where their pelvis moves a lot up and down. Everyone, you have to kind of find the best way that that person is going to move. Um, so uh, you, you know, it's, it's very individual, um, you know, so pelvis going up and down, forward and back, and then also anterior and uh, anterior tilt as well. So uh, although we want to work on all those kind of things, you know, people talk about having a neutral pelvis, but there's so much movement on there and more of the control. And if we get too crazy in one way, for that individual, it can cause a lot of problems in the rest of it. And when you're assessing for that throughout your coaching sessions, are there like angles that you like to do you video from front on sometimes behind or mainly kind of how do you go about assessing those um, those positions when you're seeing your athletes? Yeah, I mean, you know, at, at the beginning, I'm just kind of watching to see what maybe that person's movement is and where I can where I think it might need some adjusting and I, I try to find ways to uh, for them to experience maybe some different moves in order to feel what they need to feel to experiment to find it and then I try to let them just kind of be um, you know you'll do some experiments kind of thing about how they're moving and try to, sometimes it's therapy issues sometimes it's some stretching things sometimes it's just different exercises to sort of encourage different movements and uh, different ways of running and then just let them kind of be and figure it out themselves so, um, you know, as far as some of the things I look for, I look, I, I look from the side um, for different things, um, you know, uh, from the back, I'll try to look for the pelvis, um, moving for the belt line to move up and down. Um, I'm looking for where the ground contact is in relation to their center of mass. Um, how's the feet, are they, are they their foot dorsiflexing for most of the time in through the ground? Are they, are they creating the right stiffness or are they dropping the toe kind of early? Um, you know, everyone, everyone you get moves differently and they have their own way to kind of solve the problem. And, you know, I, so I try to coax them into different ways and let them experience different moves and, and, and try not to be too um, controlling on things and just see well, what comes out. And um, usually over time, usually it's things that they want to push a little too flat and encouraging a little bit of more vertical can help them orient the pelvis in a good way too. So especially in the teaching periods, I'm trying to push, I'm making them push and push a little more vertical maybe than they might be ideal and then let them, you know, figure it out over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've noticed sometimes when people are doing wickets, they kind of see it as a, a frequency builder or a way to kind of 
encourage the feet pushing down. But an awful lot of the time, at least from what I've learned from you, is that you know the wickets are often an opportunity to to learn those ground contact positions and and feel what it's like to to kind of rise through each step a little bit and push down aggressively and um, have those moments where you're 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 experiencing a bounce in the run as well as that um we have done in the past you know different drills to emphasize alongside in contrast with the wicket sessions um basically you're targeting from what i could understand is limitations in air movement or what would serve best for that athlete so if it's a punching down action that's lacking with someone's wicket run you might prescribe a certain drill tell us a little bit about that because that's quite an interesting kind of intervention and, and way to get the most out of the session of the athlete well at the beginning of the season I, I, that's you know i'll have my acceleration days and i'll have my maximum velocity days um you know I, I remember when i was a young coach i used to do a lot of acceleration and think okay now you work on the transition now you work on maximum velocity but um i remember going to a seminar with vince anderson famous for being an a&m and uh, tennessee and um he had has the opposite idea of trying to teach maximum velocity first, and then how do you? Because if you you need a, a direction of where you're going to, what's the end point? So mm-hmm. um, he thought felt like if you don't teach maximum velocity as well at the similar time, that um, you don't know they don't know where they're to go to. So I thought that was a pretty amazing thing that changed my perspective a lot. So um, early in the season, that's we'll have an acceleration days, and we'll have a day where we do work on maximum velocity stuff and. So we might throw it to wickets, maybe it's early on the grass and in flats and um, if they're a little shorter and then they start to get a little longer over time. But, you know, everyone has different reasons for what they, they do with the wickets. I, I do it to encourage a little bit of a bounce. And, and um, I, I, um, I, you, I, there's times where you could exaggerate frequency or exaggerate extra stride length. And, and I've used it for that purpose for different things, like especially maybe if I was working with hurdlers or 400 meter hurdlers and that kind of thing. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll just kind of watch them move, decide what I think they might need, um, and then provide some exercises that might encourage it. So sometimes you might do some Bosch drills that work on the pelvic movement or on the feet, um, creating right stiffness in the feet. Um, sometimes it's, uh, you know, there's stick drills that might, where you're holding a stick on your body in order to sort of, um, um, just emphasize uh, like try to keep stillness in the upper body sometimes we might be um doing like the bosch um, tapping drills um things like that that encourage footwork actions just um so yeah we're just trying to do different things to kind of tease out different movements and then at the end you know as in, in it we'll also have some move where they just kind of free move and they just run and i kind of see what exercises might be influenced in ways that look good to me mm-hmm. and then just let them kind of solve the problem but uh I try not to use too, and the things with a wicket, it's kind of like it makes you move in the right way to, to accommodate it without a lot of thinking going on, mm-hmm. which is a good kind of auto-correcting kind of drill where you really have to figure it out themselves. And yeah, and sometimes you'll see people kicking out and reaching and that's a problem, you know, so I'm trying to teach them to push in the right way. So I'll exaggerate the downward pushing. So there's some verbal keys that go on there. Uh, and sometimes it's done just with exercises. Yeah, no, I've, I've definitely noticed and seen that it kind of, in action and, and seeing like interventions for posture if you know you're not erect enough through the wickets and you're wanting to kind of elongate that action so that you can you know direct the forces in the right way and it's it's certainly an interesting concept and i didn't mean to say in the beginning that you know, wickets cannot be used for frequency but rather that the 
the utility of them in reference to pelvic movement is not something that's discussed perhaps as much as some of the other obvious benefits, which can be obviously to kind of maximize stride length or frequency depending on the athlete. Um, but I've just noticed that like perhaps some of the people at Altus are a bit more um, inclined to speak about the depth in which wickets uh, serve its pur- or their purpose or the multitude of ways that they can um, where in general you just kind of see a lot of like fast runs through wickets and it's not really like there's not really a lot of context behind it so I think the reason I wanted to ask you about yours is because I think for the large majority it's a little bit of a different perspective than than people are um, exploring if you will or, or considering as they move through what are the benefits of wickets because it's becoming a very popularized method of training um but for what reason and what are we looking for is a, is a completely different uh conversation that or um thought process that coaches should have and uh, i liked what you said about the um thoracic movement as well because i feel like for most inexperienced coaches that this kind of obsession with linear movement or controlling linear movement is is a is a quite a common um hindrance or barrier to like optimal mechanics because i mean if you look at usain bolt you know obviously the greatest of all time uh he's pretty you know he's he he's not fully flush fully linear um model if you want to say and yet was so excellent at applying forces and had such great mechanics from from pretty much the waist down but as you say the uh the role of the the thoracic is is linked to that what you see down downstairs so trying to always control that could have potentially limited what you would see in the lower limbs right yeah i think it's really important that you know the thoracic vertebrae are meant to rotate side to, to side you know our, our lumbar vertebrae are more up and down forward and back kind of movements whereas the thoracic is meant to shift a little bit. So if you kind of lock down your thoracic vertebrae and don't let it move, then you're going to get some rotation somewhere. And often it's going to be in the lumbar, which can cause a lot of lower back issues and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I'm looking for, you know, proper arm action. It, it's, it, you know, it's a, you know, some people would say, you know, it's um, overrated or, you know, you need to, you know, there has to be, you should want to see the hand striking down and extending in, in opposition to your other leg that's extending into the ground as well so you know that like trying to hold 90 degrees you if if you do that you'll tend to get a lot of twisting in the upper body too there's like in the thoracic area as well so if you just lock those down at 90 degrees there'll be tons of twisting and it'll look like you're running side to side as well Mm -hmm. trying to find the right um for each individual but you know extending the arms down will give you some balance to your opposite leg yeah that makes sense and as we bleed into kind of the idea that pelvic movement facilitates a bounce on the run um you've talked about before and i certainly know firsthand from working with you that you like to see some bounce in the run on the run on, on the long jump runway too or the triple jump runway um because the role of impulse uh plays in in generating a more seamless takeoff and um interestingly you know most a, a few months ago on twitter you had kind of put together a little five-step consideration uh process that i think was very useful for coaches when they can assess um you know what they're looking for on the runway and um it's a good it's a good roadmap i think because there are certain components that are important 
and should be constant throughout if you want to have a successful approach. So talk to us a bit about those. Well, I, I was just trying to kind of um, trying to be, find a concise way of, of saying like, what are the most important things you need to accomplish on a runway? And um, I, I think sometimes people get to it's very caught up in different kind of stylistic things and, and things that really aren't that valuable. Um, so, you know, I was saying, what's the most, what's the most things that, what are the things that matter the most in a long jump approach? So, you know, the first one was just how fast are you at about that area, about three steps out. So, you know, you've created a runway. There's lots of different ways you could start it from walk-ins to, to jog-ins to, you know, just kind of rip it from the back. There's lots of things you could do that could impact it. Um, but you know, one of the big keys is how fast are you three steps out? Because that's at the moment when you're starting to set up your takeoff there. Um, another thing was how effective the posture is three steps out. So if we've got poor posture in that area with an anterior pelvic tilt or with, a, with the right amount of bounce or pelvic um, stability, then you're going to cause problems as well. Um, that'll affect the next, the penultimate and the takeoff. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Another thing was just the energy it costs you to get there. So if you have a, an approach that's way too long for your ability level and you're slowing down at that point in time um, or you're um, or you've ripped the back and you're starting to run out of gas and you've, your, your rhythm is not, um, is not fast at that point because you, you've kind of overcooked the back. That's another issue. Um, another thing I was talking about was just that uh, if the athlete can, can execute a proper penultimate and take off with that speed that they've built in there, if it's too fast for them or they're not, they're, uh, there's not enough bounce in it because they've tried to kind of um, spin too fast or haven't pushed really well, that can cause issues and then um, how repeatable and accurate that you are doing that. So different things you can do in the run that could make it harder to do that. You know, you there's some of the things that people will talk about, you know, walk-ins or skips and things like that. And you'll see certain athletes do, um, if they're repeatable, you know, they could be, they could be fine in there, but they're probably causing a lot of complexity. And so um, just those are the, you know, the kind of those five kind of key, key things I thought were the most important things. There's a lot of style in the runway. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, but uh, you'll often see people are not the fastest three steps out, you know, that, that, that are be the ones that have the most control in the later portion of the run. So often when I'm teaching people at the beginning, I'm trying to teach them like, how can you learn to push and get a little bit of air? And if we exaggerate the air just a little bit, it'll, it helps the posture. Um, it helps them learn how to get correct posture, pelvic posture. And then from there, I'll, I'll let them speed up a little bit more if, uh, as long as they know how to hit the right angles of push and, and have getting the right extension. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose with, with regards, the difference being the 100 meters and, and the long jump runway is that you're not necessarily in a race. You're just trying to time it correctly to the point where you can hit a certain speed at a certain point. Uh, and, and hopefully when you do that, that the correct mechanics are ingrained uh, posturally and, and 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 the lower limb is is in a kind of preparatory uh ballpark for setting up a takeoff so yeah there's there's many things and ways to get there i watched the olympic final the other day and you can certainly look at all those athletes as elite as they are and none of them really did it the same way but mm -hmm. i think if you were to review the footage uh, there's probably a lot of common denominators in there. I certainly think when I look at like maybe Tentoglu and Montler, I see fairly similar similar things um, in in the final steps. And then perhaps the Cubans have their their own style. Certainly Echeverria does. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say also is that some supreme talents kind of 
make their own rules, if you will, because I find that it's almost um, ironic that for someone who excessively pulls and swings at the board the way he does, that uh, it was a hamstring injury that essentially didn't allow him to respond in the final round the way he certainly could have because I think, what was it, 841 without touching the board and a pretty bad landing in the first round or second round that had him in the position, the gold medal position right till the end and and probably was the one in which um hurt him as well. But 850 in qualifying showed that he was kind of the guy. But I mean, all that to say is, you know, your look, when you, when you break down the five-step process you've talked about, um, there certainly are things that kind of should be factored in throughout and that it's when you're looking at elite athletes, sometimes you have to ignore some of what they're doing because their talent kind of sometimes overrides their technical competence, if that makes sense. Yeah. And sometimes they've just been doing a certain thing for a long, long time. And, and they've got those patterns that they've been you know, worked on since they were, you know, 15, 14 years old. And you see them at 10 years in, um, and uh, they've gotten really effective at doing those things. And so trying to monkey with it at a, at a later age and probably not that important, but you know, where, what can they do? Can they you know, do those kind of five things? Are they fast at three steps out? Are they have good posture? Do they, you know, are they, have they got built the right rhythm in the run that it's, you know, they're at a fast rhythm at that moment in time. You know, I, I like to have like rhythm cues, you know, sort of like a rhythm location of like where you're trying to get the fastest rhythm in the run. So, you know, about four steps out, five steps out, building that rhythm faster and faster and faster and, and that gives you some control in your in your approach as well so um yeah there's lots of ways to do it uh, but yeah that's uh you know, every everyone has their but uh you know what's most important absolutely yeah there's common denominators of course and i think that gives some as you talked about with building um acceleration earlier that it, it allows for some individuality um, because there are going to be different people um, on the runway, you know, with varying characteristics, strengths, weaknesses, um, movement discrepancies, if you want to say as well, where it's not going to look the same. Um, you know, when, when I was in the group, we could you could have me, Sam, and plenty of other guys, Grant, on the runway, and obviously we're not the same in any way, shape, or form in a variety of ways. So it's kind of understanding that although you're applying similar concepts or philosophies or things you'd like to see rep by rep um there's there's some variance between what that's going to look like for that athlete and um that's one one thing i really like about the long jump as well is that you'll have you know guys in the olympic final who can who are quite slow but extremely powerful and you know you're kind of like how do they get all that distance out of themselves and then you'll have someone who's extremely fast a little bit of flatter trajectory and will um you know maximize their capabilities and then of course when you get an echeveria you kind of have someone who has the whole package and he's kind of he's no he's, he's not really weak in any, in any area at all um on the physical side of things anyway um when, when as you've kind of gone through um your experience as a jumps coach has your philosophy shifted over time? Did it take you a, a while to come to that like five-step process? I know like obviously this was something you organized in the moment uh, when you posted it, but was when you started out, because you talked about even being at uh, in Michigan, correct? 
Um, I might, I might, Michigan. I worked at Central, Central Michigan. Michigan. That's right. Yeah. So you were a, you were a jumps coach there, and you know you've had so you've had some years under you coaching the jumps. Um, has there been difference in trends? Have you always kind of been that way? Because I know we talked about you know Dan hiring your angle. So when you were an athlete, so you may have had that bias towards seeing those things just through your personal experience throughout your coaching. Um, or is this something that, okay, you've built up case studies over time and just seen that it just tends to work better when you, um, when you kind of build the patience, the rhythm, et cetera. Um, yeah. T- t- tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, this when I was a younger jump coach, I didn't have a great eye for things. I suppose things would go by you a little bit, start to slow down as you get more reps watching them. Um, so yeah, I, I think in some ways, you know, I just would, try to build a, uh, an approach and, and I just didn't have as, as good of an eye, especially to watch the end and, and how to run through the third, the last step and how to set up the, the jump. Um, so over, yeah, I mean, I, I had a pretty good understanding of mechanics and um, from pretty early and I, I was pretty good at teaching that. Um, and then over time, I had a little better experience about just how to teach people to get the right rhythms to, to be consistent on the board and how to, um, to set up the jump because I'm sure if I look back at my early jumpers, it was kind of ugly. <laughs> I wish uh, things that they did that, um, that I know a little bit better now. Um, so yeah, it, it just it just evolves over time as you work with different people and just, um, you know, I think you, you, we always kind of have our biases at different times. And I think sometimes I've emphasized like kind of maybe pushing a ton and, you know, maybe not ever turning over and, you know, trying to find that right balance that's individual for each person, you know, for each person. Um, and that's taken a little bit of time over, over, over my career. Mm, that's honest of you to say, I think, because I think acknowledging that, you know, there's been, there's been a sweet spot that you've probably found more recently or in your recent coaching years that you've continuously been exposed to, um, you know, high level athletes and you've brought them obviously very far. One thing as well we talked about the pelvic movement and obviously impulse on the runway um that really can help a seamless takeoff and and avoid a lot of the common errors that we see in athletes um who are you know running in a more flat and frequency biased manner on the runway where you know there's kind of a negative shin angle at, at, at penultimate and then you're kind of leaning back and sticking the foot out um one thing i've learned from you is that you're you're looking for it and and i've heard boo talk about this as well uh you're looking for that small bounce in each step where there's kind of a wave like um i guess picture to it where the stride is is kind of almost like a small jump to the general person at least watching a long jumper run right um and how that kind of positively influences takeoff mechanics i know you've talked about that yeah, you know, uh, Boo has been a huge influence over my career, um, you know, and still can, continues to be, you know, I still often send him videos or, you know, ask him advice and things like that um, as I run into problems. Uh, but yeah, he wrote a phenomenal article one time. I, he, he still posts on his website um, and uh, it's about the jumps approach and it's, I, it's, it's from way back um, 20 years ago, I think maybe even longer, but it's, it's a phenomenal article. I, I pass it on to anyone I can. Um, it's, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that was where a lot of my understanding of the jumps came from, just from watching him from coaching, coaching courses and things like that. But, um, you know, that, yeah, I'm looking for the, the body to move in an up and down kind of pattern. And if someone's pushing a little flat, then they're not going to have the right bounce. And then, 
you know, um, if you're not in a good posture when you're coming into the penultimate, you'll be a kind of a, uh, you'll kick your foot out as a, as a balancing mechanism to try to get your foot down. Similar as if you were like to, you know, just walking and you hit a rock and have to catch yourself. So you'll tend to stick your foot out in front and have a blocky kind of take off. So, um, you know, or the other people will just kind of run in with the shins negative all the, as they come in there and then they'll push downward negatively and then you'll stick a foot out as in that kind of writing catching kind of mechanism. So um, if you don't know how to run properly with, you know, without uh, being on an approach, then it's pretty hard to implement it on the, on the runway. So, um, you know, those are some of the things I'll look for in that way. Um, but it's a, uh, it's a very individual process and you have to find out what works for each person. But um, yeah, that, the, um, that article was kind of a big eye opener or, you know, um, Bill used to talk about like the spinal engine mechanism theories and things like that, that, you know, when you understand the mechanics, it makes things a lot more easy. I remember you sending that to me and I think we, we had a discussion over it. It is, it is very good. And perhaps I'll be able to link that, um, within the show notes or something for those who want to read a little bit more about it. It's pretty comprehensive, but I think for many experienced coaches, it's, it's, or even just someone who's perhaps an experienced athlete might be able to read it. But yeah, I, I, I remember, I remember you sharing that with me and it is really good. And it, it does um, kind of add a little bit more theory to what largely what we're talking about here. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about as well with you is, you know, and we did touch on that briefly earlier, but do you think there are pivotal moments within your coaching career that have like shifted your leadership style ever so slightly and or not even leadership style? Because I know you talked about, you know, uh, experiences where empathy became a bit more of a focal point, but um, also there's technical things that you've seen from certain athletes and it gave you an insight how to work with that individual more um yeah talk about some of the highlights and low points that kind of shaped how you approach things from that point on um yeah you know it, yeah it's hard to think of any you know kind of key moments of time um you know i think a lot of the times i've a lot of things i, I use on a daily basis are kind of from things from might have picked up as you know sitting around along the track with Dan and Boo and stuff like that that um, I kind mm -hmm. of use on a regular basis that uh, you know key moments that stuck with me you know I, I remember um, yeah I, I remember one time Dan Dan talking about you know uh, in a in a jump approach like placing your foot down on the penultimate you know flat flat um, in the last two steps but just putting your foot down on the takeoff in the same rhythm that you take off with I, I remember one time at Central Michigan I I, I watched Dan to do a talk about takeoffs and when he I looked I, I, all of a sudden everything was like was totally different and um, I, 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 I just I saw it and you know instead of people trying to stamp the board and whack at it or trying to rush it or anything like that I just saw it in a, in a very different way and um, you know I just putting your foot down and just you know on the same rhythm of the run that was one of those cues that just changed everything and all of a sudden my jumpers made a monstrous gain all at once and I just saw it in a, in a new way um, you know that it's um and, and you know big thing with um between dan and boo with running mechanics and that for boo you know one of the just learning that kind of that the body moves on kind of a sine wave and how you're amplifying in the penultimate in the takeoff what that, what that how big that the amplitude of that wave is so that was a pretty key moment in in me for that 
and, and that carries over to every single event, you know, um, everything from even throws and, um, you know, high jumps, takeoffs, all the rest. So um, those are two kind of maybe key moments I could think of, like technical things that kind of woke me up in a special way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Dan, of course, teaching me acceleration from, you know, when, in those early trips to Texas or something, um, you know, that was uh, another kind of key moment that was, you know, turn the lights on, so to speak. Um, and, you know, some of those things you just, you see something and it just changes the way your, your perspective and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're a different person, a different coach. Um, and, yeah, that's. I remember you telling me about the story uh, at Central Michigan where that girl of yours had kind of started to get grasp things, and then she had you had given her that cue, and it, it was at the kind of right time, um, given what you were seeing that day, and subsequently led to a bit of a breakthrough performance. And no doubt, I'm I'm sure many listeners who are are kind of tuning into this will have flashbacks of their own, and uh, it's all very important to kind of be linked to first principles of the event and, and what do those kind of teachings or, or learning moments mean and how do they re kind of reinforce some of your your philosophy and I really I really like to listen to the, a, a wide variety of those because um, kind of gives people a real sense of what things look like in real time and uh, give give people some context behind like what this heavy stuff can often be um, for those who are trying to like pick up notes on on you know, takeoff mechanics or acceleration is that just explaining how it how it kind of played out in a moment is is often a good way to kind of clue someone into what what's being said. Um, yeah, so just to kind of wrap up, coach. You know, many people will be familiar maybe with your social media platforms and the likes of. But um, I know since we've met, you know, you've become more of a a proponent to using social media as a means to kind of document some of your training philosophy and just your general progression within your group. You know, you like to share the breakthroughs that you've been working hard, hard and tirelessly with um, over now at Central Florida, formerly uh, Louisiana Monroe, when you started the Instagram uh, gig off. But yeah, share, share the listeners where they can follow you. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I use Instagram a fair bit, sometimes um, talking about technical things or just, yeah, using just my own life stuff too. So <laughs> people find that interesting. Um, yeah, I'm at, yeah, at uh, Glenn Smith 996 is my Instagram, or I'm on Twitter at uh, Coach G, Coach underscore G Smith. So yeah, I like to share different, um, different things that I see other coaches doing that I find exciting or just um, sometimes... Uh, you know, some of the videos of some of the great days or just some of the technical ideas that we, you know, we might be working on at different times and that kind of thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Fun. And I think, I think there, there's a, there was an impressive post you had the other day about your uh, five streams of at one time uh, for the Olympics. <laughs> I, I honestly cracked up when I saw that. I was like, if there's, I, I don't know if anyone has got more than, than three streams going, you'd five, you'd tuned in. I was like, that's true uh track and field junkie at its at its finest um so yeah, I, well, I gotta keep up with canada stuff you know cdc yeah. i've also gotta watch the make sure i'm a, obviously a big fan of every event you know i love the the hammer throw the javelin i've got to watch every single one so if i can watch it's uh, amazing the technology you, that you can do nowadays so yeah i've got tablets and phones and tv streaming and yeah the computer too so it's uh <laughs> i'm a huge fan of every part of the sport so it's uh I, this time of year yeah i'm exhausted from 
staying up all night doing it. My wife is exhausted from having me uh, disappear for hours today. Yeah, and I think that all that to say, I probably shouldn't have you disappear much longer. But nevertheless, I think anyone who listened to this episode has got a very uh, good insight to some of the best practices and also um, fundamental positions that you need to kind of master or improve your upright running positions right from teaching acceleration, how to kind of guide that into more effective upright running, and then how you can apply that to the runway. Um, All very, you know, when done well, all very, you know, beneficial um, components to improving performance. So, you know, coach, I want to say thank you very much for joining us. And yeah, I encourage everyone that is, um, you know, listening to this, follow follow Coach Smith and, and continue to keep up with what he's doing. He's certainly, um, you know, given me the, the knowledge. And I, I know I would not be doing this. I would not be able to facilitate any conversation if I hadn't uh, spent the years that I have with yourself. So I uh, thank you for that. And thank you for today as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been good to chat. And uh, yeah, always good to chat, Colin.